I'm Dana Harris, Editor-in-Chief of IndieWire, and you're listening to IndieWire Influencers. Jason Siegel's career has taken him from Freaks and Geeks to How I Met Your Mother to Forgetting Sarah Marshall to The Muppet Show. But his most memorable role to date is portraying the lionized and late author David Foster Wallace in The End of the Tour. Directed by James Ponsolt, it details a Rolling Stone journalist's real life and life-changing experience of interviewing Wallace on his book tour for Infinite Jest. Siegel's performance is thoughtful and heartfelt, and he's here to talk with us now. Jason, welcome to the program. Thanks. What a cool intro. <laughs> Glad you like. Yeah. So I want to know, when were you first aware of Wallace's work? How did, how, how did you find it in the first place? I think probably as a young comedy writer, like in my early 20s, you're introduced to the short form nonfiction, like um, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, yep. the cruise ship essay. Yep, yep. And so it was it was that sort of stuff, Consider the Lobster, Yep. because um, they're incredibly funny and insightful. And he also really writes from a... Um, he offers a surrogate experience. For the next 15 pages, I am you on this cruise ship. And I think that's a really great way to write. It's it's the kind of acting I like also. It's the Jimmy Stewart, Tom Hanks, Kermit the Frog approach. <laughs> the Kermit the Frog approach? Yeah, well, you watch, you watch The Muppet Show and you're like, okay, that's, that's who I'm following throughout this journey, you know? So in, um, when you were finding his work, were you, were you like um, one of the... Wallace acolytes, were you like really in love with this work? I mean, he because he he inspired a lot of you know really fervent fans. Yeah, I would say that I I didn't become incredibly passionate until I read Infinite Jest for this movie. Okay, and why? And what res, what did you respond to in Infinite Jest? I think the phenomenon is very similar to when you read Catcher in the Rye as a teenager, where all of a sudden somebody is articulating a very lonely feeling that you haven't had the words for. Um, you know, when you read Catcher in the Rye, you're at this period where all you're really capable of is screaming, get out of my room. <laughs> <laughs> and then you read this book and you're like, oh, I wish I had said it like that. And when I read Infinite Jest, there's, there's this really sensitive exploration of, of an idea that I think we all feel that we're told that working really hard so that you can come home and crack open a beer and watch TV is what you're told is going to satisfy you. And there's a lot of people who feel dissatisfied. I feel dissatisfied. Like there must be more than this. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of um, that's sort of what he's asking in the book. He's saying, "Hey guys, I don't feel so good. I've taken achievement to its limit and pleasure and entertainment, and I feel really dissatisfied. Does anyone else want to join me in this conversation?" So, in a weird way, like articulating the fact that there is this kind of you know existential unhappiness makes you feel good. <laughs> Makes you not feel so lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think Roald Dahl books, Harry Potter, yep. they all speak to this idea. This like really deep need for somebody to show up and say, hey, wait a minute, there's been a mistake. You're meant for the magic place. And I think that um, that is because there is some sense that there has to be more than this. Right. Well, it's like we, we were talking earlier, as you say, you say, you know, you like the weird shit. You like yeah. the, you, know, you, you you know you've got obviously your passion for um, Muppets and puppets, yeah. and um, and yet you've had obviously this career that's you know based in um, sitcoms. Although Freaks and Geeks is a pretty you know weird sitcom in, yeah. in the best sense of the word. Yeah. So it's like, what was it like making the transition to this kind of role? Did it feel like a kind of like finally I get to do this? 
it felt like um, it was time to start doing things that were reflective of where I was at this period of my life. I think as an artist, which is an embarrassing word to use. Why is it embarrassing? Well, there's a great documentary about an artist called Wayne White called Beauty is Embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And I think as I was an athlete in high school, there's something about calling yourself an artist that somehow feels uh, precious uh, and embarrassing to some extent. And it was it was very easy in my 20s to hide behind, oh, no, I'm just being clever and funny. Um, I look back now, we were just talking about, I look back now at like the, the Dracula musical at the sure. end of Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And that's really weird and unique to me in a way that I'm really proud of. Sure. And I no longer look back at that and dismiss it as like goofing off. I think, oh, that's actually... Um, that's who I am in a lot of ways. So I think that when I got this script and I read it, I really felt like, wow, this is what I'm thinking about. I bet other people are thinking about this kind of stuff. And I should do something that is really uh, honest about where I am. How do you approach a role like this? I mean, David Foster Wallace was, I mean, he was, I'm not sure you could say he was in the public eye because he really didn't mm. seek a lot of publicity. But people definitely had a perception because, like I said, he had such a huge fan base. So how do you approach portraying a person like this i think the first thing you do is you like deal with for me deal with this like tremendous flood of fear and self-doubt that comes after you've agreed to take the part (laughs) you know it's funny but here's here's the reality of it is you spend a lot of time privately um at night in bed or at a dinner party saying to your friends like if i only had this kind of material or if people really knew what i was capable of And then when you're given the opportunity, all of a sudden, you're confronted with the possibility that you might be wrong. (laughs) Right? You know? And so you deal with that for a minute of like, oh, no, it's time to put my money where my mouth is. Um, How How big was that feeling for you on this? What occurred to me at some point that made the fear go away is all I'm going to have to deal with is reality. I'm either going to find out that I can do this or I'm going to find out that I should stop um, trying to do that. And in a way that felt kind of liberating, like, all right, let's find out. And so then I think in order for that test to be accurate, you have no choice but to do everything you possibly can. So you don't leave yourself with the, uh, Oh, but I didn't do this or I didn't do that. I wanted to like leave it all on the court really. And so I, (laughs) I tried to imagine what an actor I admired would do if they were given this opportunity and copy that. So who was that? I remember um, seeing Edward Norton in Primal Fear when I was mm-hmm. in high school thinking, this is what I want to do. So Yeah, I, it's such an amazing performance. Yeah, it really is. And transformative. It's transformative within a movie. Sure. I mean, that's that's impossible. And, um, and uh, you know, I, when I was in high school, I read like an actor prepares and all of these things. And I thought, all right, let's do let's do the work. Um, it's, it's interesting because when you write your own material, which is what I did a lot in my twenties, a lot of that work happens on its own. You know, you've thought about characters, motivations and things like that because you're doing the writing. You have to, this was the first time where I had to take the script and, and really, I mean, really think about what it was about because you have these giant monologues and the real pitfall is you just sound like a guy reciting smart words. Um, and this other 
other potential like vanity pitfall of, oh, look at Jason Siegel try acting. Sure. Um, and so I just wanted to get to a point where I understood it well enough that I felt like I could just be myself, just be honest when they said action. So what does that mean when you say, you know, in preparing for a role like this, because obviously you have a real person to draw from, did you have the tapes to draw yeah. from? I had, I had the full four days of interviews from David Lipsky, which is really helpful and really interesting to listen to tonally. And also to start to get a sense of his voice, his literal voice, what he sounded like. Um, the other thing that comes across in those tapes, which is just really important for the movie, is that they, um, it wasn't all gravitas. It wasn't all talk about existential loneliness. Some of it was talk. Well, I hope not, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's that'd, be a he- that'd be a heavy four days. Yeah, and it's also two dudes in their early 30s in a car. Yeah. So there are moments where, like, they're talking about cheeseburgers, or there's this one moment where Hanson, remember Mbop, yep. comes oh, on the God. radio. Yeah, and they talk about Mbop for a while. <laughs> And that was actually really important to take into the movie because you need to want to be in the back seat of that car, I think, as a as an audience member. So there was that, and then there was the uh, this Charlie Rose interview, which was really helpful because it's right from the period, and you get to really feel his discomfort in that. It's the phenomenon of somebody with the biggest brain in the room who's able to give you a twenty minute answer to a question where. Maybe you wanted two sentences, <laughs> you know, and then you like whether, whether you want it or not. Yeah. yeah. And then you see the immediate regret in his eyes after he does the 20 minute answer. Um, that was really helpful. And then Infinite Jest was really what I drew from mostly, because even though it's fiction, it, it feels so personal. And also it's like, do you feel like you have a certain I mean, usually you've created many characters and this isn't you're creating a character here, but this is obviously someone, a real life person. So what kind of responsibility do you feel or do you have to kind of divorce yourself from that idea? I think you have a tremendous responsibility to the people who love him and know him in varying capacities. So that's that's number one. What I felt like the real responsibility was, though, was to be true to the themes that I felt like David Foster Wallace was trying to express. That to me was the most important. And, and my experience, so this takes place in the last four days of the Infinite Jazz press tour. Right. And what occurred to me at one point was I've done a lot of press tours. And I'm a different guy on the end of the tour press junket than I am on the Muppets press junket. And neither of those is a lie. They're just a function of what you are thinking and talking about every day. I'm all childlike wonder on the Muppets press tour because it's what I'm thinking about. Sure. And so... What I thought was, if this four days is at the end of the Infinite Jest press tour, then what is at the front of his brain are the themes of Infinite Jest? That's sort of where he's living. He's just finished writing the book as well. It's it's right. It's what's at the front of his mind. And so if I really focused on that, I should end up in the right area. And what about, um, did you get to work with Lipsky as well on this? You know, I, I met Lipsky afterwards and he gave me the tapes, but I, I made a decision early on, this was my thought process, that... The movie is really a, a two-hander between Lipsky and David Foster Wallace. Right. Uh, one guy who views everything that's happening one way and another who sees it entirely differently. And I felt like if uh, both Jesse and I were coming from Lipsky's point of view, then where is the tension in the movie? So to be honest, I, I really didn't want to know what Lipsky thought about these conversations because I would be too informed about Jesse. Does that make sense? No, that totally makes sense. I mean, because if you're looking to create dramatic tension, that's... Yeah. I didn't want to know what Jesse was doing. You can feel in the scenes, I think, two guys who are playing basically like a... 
<laughs> this really interesting sort of friendly game of tennis where you need the right. other person for the volley, but you're also thinking the whole time, when do I level the winning blow? Like you need them, but you also want to defeat them. Sure, that totally makes sense. What um, what did Lipsky say to you after, in the terms of the, or did he did he discuss your portrayal at all? Well, I, from everything that I understand, Lipsky felt like it was pretty accurate to what it felt like to be there, which is the best compliment that you can get. Right. Um, now that you and now that you've done this, though, do you feel like okay, I can do this again? I can take you know, I want to take on you want to take on more roles like this. Well, what I feel like is I want to do things that are really interesting to me and that kind of challenge my capacity for honesty. That's what I took away from this movie. It, what does that mean to challenge your capacity for honesty? Well, I think that this movie is a real, there's not big plot movements in this movie. It's like, how honest are you willing to be on screen? Got it. And that sort of transcends genre. I think um, if you watch being there, right. That's, that's what that is. How honest are you willing to be on screen? Peter Sellers, in a lot of ways, is doing nothing but responding honestly to what's happening around him. That's really interesting to me. And I want to do movies that I would watch. What What are movies that you'd watch? Like, what are the what are, what are some of the films that came out, like, in the last year or two that you really responded to? Frank. Mm-hmm. Only Lovers Left Alive. Grand Budapest Hotel. These movies that are kind of little um, music boxes that sit alone on the shelf and you can pick them up and open them up and experience them and they just stand alone. How do you feel about the, you know, the forgetting Sarah Marshall's of the world and, uh, and for that matter, the, you know, how I met your mother, is that something you'd want to go back to now? Or is that, you feel like that's from a earlier part of your life? Well, I feel very, very proud of all of them. Right. But I think that as an artist to use the word, <laughs> you should be um, doing things that are reflective of where you are at that point in your life. And just uh, thinking about different stuff now. I'm 35 years old, and so uh, I just I, I find that I'm I'm thinking about different things. You know, when I was um, doing Forgetting Sarah Marshall, that's a period in your life where everyone can relate. You're like 24, 25 years old. A breakup feels like the biggest thing in the world, sure. and you call it the breakup as though <laughs> it's never happened before. Yeah, totally. Um, and you know, that's just not that's not where I am at this point. I'm thinking about other things. You know, when, when the TV show ended. There's a line in the um, movie where David Foster Wallace says, I have to face the reality of being 34 years old alone in a room with a piece of paper. That's after he's unloaded a masterpiece, a thousand plus page masterpiece. It's just come out. This is the, I mean, the, the book tour isn't even over yet. And he's thinking like, what next? I have this blank canvas in front of me. That's a little bit of what I feel like right now in a very exciting way. Like, how do I want to spend the next, whatever the next phase is? It seems like every decade you reevaluate. Would you ever want to direct? It's an interesting question. If I, uh, if there was material where I felt like nobody could do this better than me, then I would direct it. Right now, I, especially after working with someone like James Ponsold, I feel like well, this is an actual talent. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not notice that before? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's like... If I directed right now, it would be directing out of pride. It would be directing to say that I had directed. That you can direct. Yeah. yeah. And um, why do that when I know personally three or four people who could direct better than me? <laughs> and I know impersonally, like, hundreds. What, what impressed you about James' direction? The fact that James chose me to play David Foster Wallace is not an obvious choice. You know, I'm, I'm like, really aware... 
did he talk to you about how he came to choose you? Yeah, he said that um, he said that in all of my comedy, he could always see something sad behind my eyes. Hello. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he also said it was important that we not approach the part with too much gravitas and not mm-hmm. try to deify David Foster Wallace and to remember that he was a dude. You know, a 34-year-old dude. Right. Um, and that he was funny and complicated and um, tried his best to be polite, but sometimes didn't achieve that. You know, all of these things. Um, but casting me is a bold choice that I don't think a lot of people would make. And you look at the casting in all of his movies, and he, he goes with his gut. Then the other thing that he did... I mean, there are scenes where I deliver these like massive monologues, mm-hmm. two page monologues. And then when I saw the movie cut together, I'm like, oh man, you just stayed on Jesse's eyes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh right, that's what the scene is about. The scene is about these small changes in Jesse. So it's Jesse's job to think about his character. It's my job to think about my character. And then there's James who's seeing the piece as a whole. And I think that's just a really special skill. How, you know, when you're doing like these massive chunks of monologues, because there are, there's, you know, there's an, or I was thinking about that at one point, watching something, thinking, how do you get, not get lost in this? I mean, it's just in terms of, because the kind of thinker he was too, this is a guy who has very kind of free flowing yeah. thoughts that are, that are wind up being brilliant because they do all knit together, but they're yeah. not, it's not necessarily the most linear. No, it's really interesting. I've never seen somebody speak in fully formed arguments off the cuff with like a thesis and supporting points and a conclusion and it's really interesting he there's this one thing i noticed that i put into the physicality of it is he he talks with his hands in a really particular way that reminded me of that movie minority report yeah where there's that screen and tom cruise is moving information around yep you feel as though david foster wallace has all of the information at his disposal and as he's talking he's putting it in order and moving it around and saying, oh, no, you know, he uses these end notes in his writing. And right. there's this thing he does with his hands where he'll say something and then he'll, he'll be like, oh, hold on. I want to move down here to an end note and bring it back. His footnotes were amazing. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so frustrating sometimes. Um, you know, you read Infinite Jest. And if anyone is going to try to tackle it, I suggest you read it, uh, the physical book, not an ebook. I can, no, I can't imagine trying to do that in an ebook. That would drive me crazy. Yeah, no, me neither. There's this thing that he does, and I think it's intentional. I think it's reader antagonizing, <laughs> where you'll be at the beginning of the book, and you have so much left to go. It's just this huge thing. And you'll get to a, a, an end note. And so you physically flip to the back of the book. Right. And then you read like a 25-page endnote on tennis that is so hard to get through. But you get to the end of it, and you're proud of yourself. And you have some sense of accomplishment because you're now physically at the end of the book. And then you have to flip back to where you were. <laughs> and it's like slapping a dog on the nose. I mean, it really is. It's intense. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time. It's oh, been awesome. thank you. That, that flew by. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of IndieWire Influencers. And please check out our other fine podcasts, Screen Talk and Very Good TV, which are available at iTunes and our own IndieWire.com. <laughs>